transmitting from the Mojave Wilderness in Joshua Tree, California. Now is the time for Desert Oracle Radio, the voice of the desert. Night has fallen on the desert. I was behind the wheel a couple hours out of Los Angeles. The wind knocking around the semi-truck trailers, wispy clouds whipping around San Jacinto. Flipping through the satellite radio channels, feeling alright, pretty good, not bad, can't complain. Gene Watson singing honky-tonk, old dirty bees slurring poetry, the golden hour giving way to maybe one last blast of cold winter wind, and the unreliable specter of precipitation. Gassing up at the Morongo Casino. Always support your local tribe. And then the last stretch. Open road to the 62. Just got to find a notch between the big rigs and the right-hand lane. Safe as in your mother's womb. The grade maneuvering through the tourists making way for the hot rodders ever cognizant of the fact that every couple of times you come up this canyon there's a dozen Marine Corps vehicles splayed out over half a mile of right lane highway flares and young grunts standing guard why do so many of their vehicles break down Is that part of the training? I mean, if they can't get between Camp Pendleton and 29 Palms without half the transports failing along the way, we might need to revisit our national defense strategy. Speaking of the Navy, some strange tales emerged this week. Strange tales of strange happenings around and aboard a flotilla of U.S. Navy ships doing their various exercises off the coast of California, around the Channel Islands. The story goes something like this. In the summer of 2019... Not even two years ago, in the last normal summer before the shutdown, the freak-out, quarantine Earth, five naval destroyers were involved in multiple nights of bizarre visitations by brazen craft, zooming around the decks in low visibility on the open sea for hours at a time. The USS Kidd, along with U.S. Navy destroyers named the Raphael Peralta, the Russell, the John Finn, and the Paul Hamilton, endured the aerial harassment because nobody could do anything about it. All those destroyers... 
apparently no ability to destroy. Or maybe they chose not to destroy, which is good of them, although it sort of defeats the purpose of a destroyer. In the last hours before midnight, the USS Kidd saw the most persistent activity. At one point, a bright white light hovered over the flight deck, effortlessly maintaining its position as the destroyer chugged through the ocean dark at 16 knots. Spotter teams attempted to identify the craft, but they were hampered by low visibility and overall poor conditions. Offshore fog. The story was first reported on Twitter by Dave Beatty, who keeps his eye on such things. And that strange military car industry website called The Drive pieced together the whole encounter in the various ships' relative locations. Now, some eyewitnesses described oval craft with no visible propulsion systems. Others simply recorded UAVs, unmanned aerial vehicles. Usually meant to describe drone aircraft, but perhaps not inaccurate in this case. For several nights, whatever these things were, they sure did keep the U.S. Navy Company on the lonely nights at sea. Naval intelligence and the FBI got involved afterwards, and the top levels of Navy administration closely followed the situation. Which remains unresolved, unexplained. So we'll just forget about it, let it wash back out to sea. But if at some point over the next year the Pentagon comes calling for a doubled or tripled military budget because of the terrible threat of spook lights hovering around naval destroyers, you will be in the know. And you'll know there's nothing new about these fairy lights buzzing around our machines of war.
The lights have often shown interest in our military operations and were first noticed following us around in the sky during World War II. When scores of pilots were trailed by the mystery shapes of light that displayed navigational intelligence and a kind of playfulness. They could never be caught or shot down or identified to anyone's satisfaction. The assumption was that the Nazis had something really hot. Something more like magic than any conventional aircraft on a conventional airframe. But when the American victors hauled away the Nazi technology and its many brilliant scientists... The Foo Fighters turned out to be a mystery to the Germans, too. A couple of years ago, our dull media dystopia was briefly brightened by the story of the Tic Tac craft that bedeviled aircraft carrier captains and top gun pilots off the coast of San Diego, but in broad daylight. The most dramatic encounters happened around the USS Nimitz, including the daylight sighting of a shimmering pearl-colored egg-shaped enigma that plunged into the ocean and just sat there below the waves for a few moments before vanishing into the depths of the Pacific. The strange activity has been going on for a long, long time. The Tic Tac UFO stories go back to the first years of our young century. But for much longer, those people inclined to second sight have noted that the Channel Islands and their much smaller sisters called the Coronado Islands, just off the coast of Tijuana, are haunted places. Things come and go from the sea to the air and back again. phenomenon I have in mind generally as an explanation, especially of two cases which I learned from American bomber pilots, uh, is that it is an electrical phenomenon of high altitude. Uh, this particular case I still put down as a natural phenomenon unless I'm shown evidence, 
but not as a high-altitude phenomenon and not as electrical. My general believe this this, that there is a very rare natural phenomenon which is observed rarely anywhere on Earth, but it seems to be a little less rare on the northern slopes of the Alps, what is known as ball lightning, and has been written up extensively in European scientific literature. I know of two other cases reports from the ground. One comes from the Crimea and one comes from Denver, Colorado. And this ball lightning consists of, we don't know yet how it originates, of a ball, luminous, usually bluish looking, between six and eight inches in diameter, which moves very slowly. In other words, anybody at a walking speed can overtake it easily. Uh, the thing as a whole moves along electrical conductors, or say like a barbed wire fence, and it ends in two different ways. Either it blows up, literally speaking, in which case it causes a small amount of damage. Uh, I could say it causes the same amount of damage as 10 ounces of black powder exploding, but I don't know how much you have played on with black powder. So in other words, it would push a door on or something like that. The second way in which, it is, in which it disappears is that it seems to collapse in itself, which gives the optical effect of receiving at an enormous rate of speed. Uh, some of the uh, UFOs reported by pilots seeing what in flight fit this description and I have a tentative theory which I have been able to work out in detail, lack of time, uh, that these all lightning phenomena in the upper atmosphere are probably caused by the presence of the airplane. If you have atmosphere with a high degree of electric tension, the presence of a metal object may cause this phenomenon. As I said, this is purely tentative. I may be proven wrong tomorrow morning, but I want to be proven wrong. As a 13-year-old, sitting on the beach at night with my uncle at Rocky Point on the Sea of Cortez, he was a Navy veteran and something of a desert hippie, and he was also a scuba instructor. And the waters of Puerto Penesco were legendary in those days. 
We were just sitting there on the little seawall, talking after dinner, looking out on the Gulf of California. And an egg-shaped something or other was hovering over the sea, not too far offshore. Not quite as big as the moon, but plenty big enough to notice. We thought it might have been a trawler coming in, a fishing boat. But it did a couple of strange maneuvers that made us think twice. And then it just plopped down into the dark waters and disappeared. I remember something like a glow below that spot, just below the dark waves. But that might have just been the light fading in my own vision, the ghost of a bright light you still see for a moment in the dark. By the time of World War II, magnetic anomalies had been located and mapped around the Channel Islands and the Coronado Islands, too. From the concept of ley lines to the USGS, we've often paid special attention to the places where everything gets a little screwy. Sacred springs, old groves... There's a big anomaly off Cape Lookout, Oregon. That's where, on May 19, 1943, a young naval lieutenant, junior grade, L. Ron Hubbard, led his new PC-461-class submarine chaser into battle with a pair of phantom Japanese submarines. On its first night out of Astoria, Hubbard was in combat. With two Navy blimps, two Coast Guard patrol boats, and another two sub-chasers all joining the hunt for the alleged Japanese submarines, which were never there. Hubbard was called back to port, and his superior officers were a little bit unhappy. New orders. Deliver the USS PC-815 to port in San Diego. This occurred without incident. And from June 2 to June 28, Lieutenant Hubbard was based in San Diego. Hubbard and the USS PC-815 then took part in anti-submarine war games near the Coronado Islands, which, it should be noted, are part of Mexico, and at the time were inhabited. For reasons still debated today, Lieutenant Hubbard ordered an impromptu gunnery exercise, firing the big guns at the Mexican island of South Coronado. The shelling led to an immediate diplomatic crisis between Mexico and the United States. An unnecessary and unforced error in a time of global war. It was the end of Lieutenant Hubbard's command days, too. A naval investigation concluded that the lieutenant had disregarded orders anchoring in Mexican waters without authority and conducting unauthorized gunnery practice. Hubbard argued that he was tired and conditions were foggy and his crew needed the practice. Vice Admiral Frank Fletcher wrote the following, Consider this officer lacking in the essential qualities of judgment, leadership, and cooperation. 
He acts without forethought as to probable results. He is believed to have been sincere in his efforts to make his ship efficient and ready. Not considered qualified for command or promotion at this time. Recommend duty on a large vessel where he can be properly supervised. A month earlier, Vice Admiral Fletcher submitted a similar report to Fleet Admiral Chester W. Nimitz regarding the Phantom submarines off the coast of Oregon. It is noted that the report of BC-815 is not in accordance with anti-submarine action by surface ship. An analysis of all reports convinces me that there was no submarine in the area. Lieutenant Commander Sullivan states that he was unable to obtain any evidence of a submarine except one bubble of air, which is unexplained except by turbulence of water due to a depth charge explosion. The commanding officers of all ships except the BC-815 state they had no evidence of a submarine and do not think a submarine was in the area. Hubbard spent the remainder of his Navy days in various naval hospitals, complaining of various ailments, stomach problems, vision problems, aches and pains. Hubbard himself would later write that this sickbed time was crucial in his development of Dianetics, a self-help system he would later reimagine as a religion. He left the hospital and did not return to his wife and children. Instead, he moved into the Pasadena mansion owned by the pioneering rocket scientist and occultist Jack Parsons. A new era had begun. Magic rituals were performed in the Mojave Desert. An elemental was summoned. But Hubbard was soon on the move again, this time using Parsons' money in a yacht-flipping scheme that the great beast himself, Alistair Crowley, saw right through. Crowley wrote to Parsons, I suspect Braun is playing a confidence trick. And he called Jack a weak fool, an obvious victim of prowling swindlers. As for the PC-815, the sub-chasing ship was cursed and known to San Diego sailors as the Jinxed Sub-Chaser and was kept out of active duty for two years when, on September 11, 1945, it collided with the destroyer USS Laffey in dense fog off San Diego. Five minutes later, the burning PC-815 had sunk with one man lost to the sea. The wreckage remained a danger to ships traveling the busy channel until it was demolished with explosives by Navy divers in November that same year. side note if you're waiting for the Philip K. Dick synchronicity is that in the year 1938 before his wartime misadventures L. Ron Hubbard underwent dental surgery and suffered something like a transcendent experience triggered by the opiates that numbed his jaw the result was a still unpublished religious text he called Excalibur 
A manuscript so world-altering that, according to Hubbard himself, whoever read it either went insane or committed suicide. Well, maybe that's why the New York publishers all passed. For those pilgrims seeking the various desert places Elrond called home, the best known is a handsome mid-century home on North 44th Street in Phoenix, Arizona. Now a private residence that is listed in the National Register of Historic Places as the Elrond Hubbard House at Camelback. It was here in 1952 that Hubbard began his local lectures on his own philosophy, a series of lectures titled The Golden Dawn. From Amboy to Zizix and across the great Mojave wilderness, this is Desert Oracle Radio, broadcasting from Joshua Tree, Friday night to 10 p.m. And at various times on our makeshift network of participating community radio stations from coast to coast, you can hear us on WOOL, Wool FM in Vermont, and KZMU in and around Moab, Utah. And I believe we're still on Lookout FM in Hollywood and Burbank. You know, I'm not entirely sure there's a complete list of our community stations anywhere. Maybe somebody will make one and put it on our website, desertoracle.com. Thanks to Red, Blue, Black, Silver for the new soundscapes tonight. The podcast is available to all who have stained their souls with a cell phone. Desert Oracle Radio is the name. Support for this program comes from our friends who contribute to the cause on Patreon, patreon.com, Desert Oracle. And I'm your host, Ken Lane. Thank you for listening. And good night from the voice of the desert.